Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes and we are here at our offices. Amanda McKenzie is one of the UK's most respected marketers. Beginning her career in agency world, she jumped brandside in 1998 to work at Air Miles, BT and British Gas before joining Aviva in 2008 at a challenging time for the sector amid the financial crash and a pivotal one for the company overseeing one of the biggest rebrands in financial services history from Norwich Union to Aviva. And if that wasn't challenged enough, she left Aviva to chair Project Everyone, which set out to make the UN's global development goals famous around the world. She is currently CEO of Business in the Community, which has the lofty ambition of helping draw a line for business between success and sustaining the communities that they operate in. And she also has the Royal Seal of Approval, being awarded an OBE in the 2015 New Year's Honours List for Services to Marketing. Hello, Amanda. Hello. How did that feel? Gosh, extraordinary, really. If I'm honest, I wasn't really aware of anyone else had an OBE for marketing, so I couldn't decide whether it felt like an extraordinarily special A-level, <laughs> like, oh, it meant I was really good at the subject, or, or it did mean, hopefully, I'd, I'd contributed a little bit to the, to the industry. It was very special, and it's very lovely, and the issue now is making sure that we just help, help more people to contribute to the industry as a whole, really. Let me take you back before OBEs and before all your services to marketing to when you were starting out your career in agency world. What inspired you to take a career in marketing? So I can't say I planned it that way. I thought I was going to be a, a doctor. Well, I actually originally thought I was going to be a ballet dancer, but the, the Royal Academy, when I did the audition, took one look at me and decided I, my shape really wasn't so going to be a ballet dancer. This was going to be a thing? Yeah, no, I literally... It wasn't just a... No, 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 I went a, with a my mum. little mom. girl's dream. No, I went with my mum to the audition. My dad was praying like mad I wouldn't get it. Anyway, Ripple dissolved to university. I went on one of those uh, insight into management courses. Then I was lucky enough to get on the Procter & Gamble marketing vacation course. And then suddenly, from not really knowing what I wanted to do, that whole world of marketing and advertising was introduced to me. And I thought, gosh, how fascinating. And it was a great use of a psychology degree, actually, because I then realised I was quite interested in how people work. And that was that. You started your career in earnest in agencies yes. before moving to the world of brands. Did that give you a different perspective, do you think, before you went brand side? Is there an advantage to perhaps starting on the other side of the fence, as yes. it were? Uh, well, I mean, I think there's always an advantage to moving sides. So yeah. <laughs> whichever way, because you have a, a unique perspective and then you can bring it to bear in a different way. Because I think it's very easy how well-worn our, our memory and our muscle memory in various ways goes very easily. And therefore, we don't think new thoughts. Uh, so I think it was a huge advantage. It also means that you looked at quite a few different kind of business problems over a period of time. Of course, you're not quite as involved as you would be when you join a company itself. But it means you, you do look at lots of different business models, different business problems. So your mind gets agile about how, how to solve problems. I always say to people that most helpful, best first jobs should be those where they're teaching you how to think, because then you can apply that 
as a sort of mini method in your mind almost to anything you ever do. And if you've got that at the start of your career, no one can ever take it away. So, yes, it helped me learn how to think, how to be agile, how to be flexible. It also meant that when you did move into marketing, the things, if you were never phased or cowed by the advertising agency might say, oh, no, the logo can't be bigger or I'm, I'm, I'm being slightly unfair because clearly when advertising works, it's the most phenomenal, incredible thing. And I use advertising in its broadest sense these days, obviously. But it just meant that you had that perspective. And I deliberately went to Air Miles because I felt it wasn't an advertising heavy business. So it meant that I could spend a lot of time doing all the things like CRM database that I never had any experience of so it was a nice way to sort of complete a set of marketing skills if that's the right way to think about it a data-driven marketer before data-driven marketers were really yes probably probably yes we hear a lot about breakdown in relationships or the fundamental change in relationships between agencies and for want of a better way of putting it clients when you look back at your time in agencies and then reflect given the amount of time that you spent at brands would you acknowledge that there's been a change or indeed a breakdown in the relationships I think apart from the financial model so I'm going to come back to that I'm not sure there has I think good people in agencies and good clients are still good people in agencies and good clients they're just a generation or so later so I don't feel the fundamentals of what makes a good relationship have actually changed But I think with the transparency uh, of various things, what perhaps has changed and therefore contributed to a breakdown is the nature of how, certainly on media, how transparent the billing is. And I think with new types of media, that hasn't helped. You know, if you say the word client, it almost sounds a bit pejorative. It almost sounds like someone's got a sort of yellow sticky on the forehead that says, I'm a client, I'm a bit of a wally, which is, of course, so wrong in every sense. They're human beings. They've got a job to do. And if anyone should ever suggest that they're not incredibly valuable in every sense, then it's a really bad thing. And I think sometimes you get that slight sense of it. And it's, it's frankly, it's unprofessional, but it's childish. I mean, it's just wrong, but it still happens in pockets and it shouldn't. So I feel... The, the root of it is, is teaching that respect right at the very beginning and never let anyone just do those sort of off-the-cuff, oh, the client said, you know, and you hear that still occasionally and it's just wrong and I think it needs to be stamped out and then, then the fundamentals of a very respectful relationship are always there and I, I always felt that the best way to test an agency wasn't when things are going well, it's when things are going badly and how they respond to feedback that maybe isn't what they want to hear and I've been very fortunate the agencies I work with, they would really hear what I was trying to say rather than just defend what they wanted to do and I think that that's where it should, it, I can't see any reason why that should still not be the case. You mentioned AMLs a moment ago and I was really interested to find out they did not operate a company pension scheme Mm. and that wasn't them being miserly. It was a deliberate strategic move, if I understand this correctly, to ensure that you were more marketable as an employee for when you left. I'm not asking you to speak on their behalf, but what did you think of that approach? It seems like a a huge folly or a, a wonderful silver bullet to getting the best out of people while they're there. Well, yes, and, and in my case, I would say it, it felt like a very good reason to join the company because the spirit was, come, give of your best, and when you no longer feel you are able to do that because we're not able to do that for you, 
then leave. So they didn't want anything that artificially tied you in. I mean, if you think of how many big, big companies have employees average 10 year, 25, 30 years, and they will then retire on a final salary pension of two thirds of their final salary, or even their salary average, that that ends up, whether we like it or not, as golden handcuffs. And, And as we know, um, it's a huge drag on the value of a lot of companies now because they spend more time in having to put money into their final salary pension schemes than they can do investing in future infrastructure or whatever else. So actually, I think it was a very insightful thought. What you don't necessarily then get is long-term IP, if you like, in your employees. So there's downsides and upsides to it. IP? Well, the intellectual property of oh, okay. the it's sort of inherent in, in your workforce. So you haven't got a lot of memory, corporate memory that says, oh, well, actually, when we did this, this is what we learned. Uh, And I I think it's usually undervalued that. Um, But I can't believe there's not a a way through it. And obviously today you have to have a minimum pension for everybody in in the workplace anyway. You've worked for huge companies or went on to work for huge companies that are geographically right across the world in many cases, Aviva, British Gas, BT, but you've also, I suppose, more recently worked for, I suppose, what you could describe as startups in Project Everyone and very much a different beast in BITC. What do you think those smaller companies, and reflecting perhaps on some of the conversations and experiences that you have with the people you work with right now, can teach those big companies, those traditional companies that are perhaps overcome by, you know, legacy thinking and bureaucracy? I know for certain it's quite interesting um, so Jeremy Derrick's our chair at BITC, who's the CEO of uh, Sky. He He's so struck by how resource constrained we are. And I've heard him say to his teams, you think we're resource constrained. You should see what those guys manage to do with so little. And I really do feel you can always do more with less because it forces you to be more creative and thoughtful about how to solve problems. I think big companies could learn from that. So talking about British gas and utilities in general, actually to a degree British Telecom, they all play massive roles in people's lives, which presumably is the kind of marketing opportunity that you would have really appreciated and relished. But certainly in the case of British gas and the other utility companies are often public enemy number one. Was that part of the attraction when you... Went there? <laughs> Are you a sucker for punishment? Um, I think I might be, actually. Well, you moved on to financial services next, which we'll go yeah. on to talk about in a moment. Well, I like, you see, what I do like is the complexity of those markets. And I feel a product, whilst, you know, the innovation in product marketing, I think, needs to come at the moment around recyclability of your packaging, the sustainability of the contents, etc. So that's where the innovation comes. But I think in utilities and indeed financial services, it was always the preciousness, actually, of the customer relationship and making sure that you really did do right by them. So those markets that are really fundamental to how we live our lives, I think, are very fascinating and do come with a huge obligation. There are very few companies and brands that do play that part in people's lives. But as you quite rightly say, there is uh, perhaps a potential downside to that. I mean, moving on your time at Aviva, I, I think you joined just before the financial crisis. I'm not pinning it on you, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's entirely my fault. No, it's insurance, <laughs> so it wasn't investment banking, so yeah, it's not yeah, quite the same no, thing. But no. you must have felt the heat of the, you know, the daggers that were on you throughout the country being part of a, a big financial services mm. firm. Did that, did that add, add an extra layer of difficulty to the job? 
It did, and yet strangely, it was an advantage when we did the name change mm. because a lot of brands were choosing to go quite silent. And so it meant that we still carried on with our name change, which meant there was less noise in the marketplace, so our, we could cut through a lot. But it also did mean that we had to do an awful lot of work. We really did try and say it's not, it's not just a change of name, it's so much more than that, and really think through a lot of our customer experiences. And honestly, I thought insurance was going to be really boring. If you'd have given me a million quid, I don't know what, 15 years ago, to say you'll, you'll have 10, almost 10 incredibly fantastic, enjoyable years in insurance, I'd have thought you were mad and I wouldn't have believed you. Why did you go there in the first place then? Well, because the name change was just such an extraordinary thing to do. To be honest, I was going to be the first woman on the Aviva exec. So in a 300 and what it was, 16-year-old company, being the first woman on exec felt like a... I quite like the pioneering nature of that, if I'm honest. And I then utterly and completely fell in love with insurance. I defy anyone to sit on a call centre where it's the life insurance line where someone is ringing in to say one of their relatives has died and the preciousness of that moment to really make their life much better versus make it not much better. And I think the privilege you have to make that moment as good as it can be for someone. So it's those moments when you realise that that market done well seriously, seriously helps people. And you go, well, that's great. And and forgive me if that sounds all a bit lofty, but it is really precious. And I personally find that side of marketing, which is for me absolutely delivering what a customer needs when they need it and really making sure that that customer would recommend you, which is the ultimate. I can see, I mean, that level of emotion and potential to engage with people is not something that you can replicate if you work for P&G or Unilever in that respect. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. I can't move off the subject of Norwich Union to Aviva without asking you about the advertising campaign that you launched to announce it, which had some of the world's biggest stars now, never mind then. Bruce Willis, Ringo Starr, Alice Cooper. Did you meet any of them? I didn't. I didn't go to any of the shoots or anything. You're not lobbying for it. Oh, obviously, but no, because the brand team did a brilliant job with that and Abbott Mead were sensational and it just felt, I don't know, I I should have really, looking back, I was silly. I don't know why I didn't. When AMV were discussing the nature of the campaign, uh, tell me how it worked, like they they were emailing you a list of uh, (laughs) massive stars and you were going, no, I don't want him. Don't want to, don't want to. Oh, well, Ringo will do. Yeah. Well, of course, the key thing, the key attribute they all had to have is they changed their name. Of course. And they'd gone on to great things. So in a way, it then became anybody from, you know, some, some of the stars would do it for a fee that we could, we were thought was reasonable. And some of the people who had changed their names were just asked ridiculous amounts of money and we said no. So in a strange sort of way, the list sort of wrote itself. You've never been one to just think about your job as a marketer in in isolation of wider business issues. And whilst you were at Aviva, uh, you took part in Lord Avis's review into women on boards. Talk to me about how that came about. I do fundamentally believe the data that is diversity in all things is, is a good thing. When I heard about the review, I really want to feel I can contribute to that. Um, and it was just about the same time, actually, as I was going on the mother care board. Because when I joined Aviva, I said I want to 
try and go on a board after about a couple of years and they said fine get the name change out the way and then you can do that I just do feel very passionate about it's not just women it is the whole diversity and inclusion I think workplaces should be the place where you can come bring your best and you know your background your color your race your gender shouldn't get in the way it should be all about really trying to bring the best out of everybody Lord Davis Mervyn is the most incredible guy so he ran a brilliant steering group so I feel selfishly I grew and learned lots from it as well as hopefully contributing a little bit too and I think it's always great to get out and do something different because again it's a bit like as I described the agency world you get to work on different brands and you have a different perspective you will always bring something back to your core employer and it will help you have a a better way of solving problems internally. Warming to that making sure that you have a variety and perhaps seeking different experiences Mm -hmm. within I suppose the confines as much as anything of your job. A lot of marketers will say, I've got enough on my plate just (laughs) managing this brand. I mean, how do you find the time to do that as well as a CMO job as you were at Aviva at the time? I think you you always do. Do you know what I mean? It's like when people train for marathons, right? Where do they find the training time? They do. And the minute the marathon's over, it's like the seed comes back again and and the time disappears. So I think if you have a will to do it, you will. And you will extend your weekends and you will will work the weekends because that's what you're willing to do. But I think fundamentally as well, the better your team around you, the more empowered, the more you're course correct and direct, but you're not having to kind of roll your sleeves up too much. Yeah, I think that's it. You, You need to be determined you're going to make it work what's that little phrase and give a busy person something to do and they always will because they always somehow find a way to do it so seven years on from the review uh, that you took part in what's your assessment of the progress in terms of women being represented at the upper echelons of business so in terms of the exam question we set ourselves then and the number of women on FTSE boards, whilst we're not at a third yet, we're not that far off. So the Hampton Alexander review that's followed the Davis review has continued on that. But the other thing that they've done, which is fabulous, is say, but that's not good enough. But we had to focus on one thing. So that was the one thing the Davis review focused on was actually the number of women on boards, so non-exec directors. But actually, it's then the executive committees and then the pipeline, because It's still a woeful number of CEOs in the FTSE uh, 350 that are women. I think it's about 12. But you can't suddenly magic those. Even if we'd set about that seven years ago, you couldn't have necessarily changed that because the CEOs of the 2030s are mid-20s now. So actually, we have to start thinking about that cohort and how we're going to support them through their careers to have a P&L, and then they are sort of CEO-ready once they've had their children or if they if they have children and then come out the other side so I think it's in part on boards tick certainly in the right direction and we kind of know where the levers are the headhunter community are much more tuned into this and certainly chairman on the whole are although I did you see that report a few weeks ago of the excuses that some FTSE 350 chairs gave for not having women on their boards it was gobsmacking to give you a couple yes yeah yeah, give you a couple um, you know the issues are very complex I'm not sure they could cope you know as I remember when I first saw these things I said this isn't this looks like it should be 1918 not 2018 you know and the other one was well we've got one (laughs) We, we don't need any more that is fortunately now the tiny tiny minority but I do feel it passionately that we have to encourage people to take on P&L responsibility. And, that, and this is what I would also say to a marketer is, you know, 
even if you're hugely passionate about your subject and want to be in marketing for the whole of the rest of your life and you can't imagine ever doing anything else, a bit like getting context from different countries and different sectors, if you can, tr- try and get yourself a P&L uh, and run a tiny mini business or even a business line within your business at some point in your career. It will make you better at whatever you choose to do, but it will also increase your optionality for becoming a CEO. Ideally, I would say that a marketing person should get some PL experience and really get that context into their day job, which will then give them optionality for the future. Because I think we do want to have CEOs that have got marketing backgrounds, not just finance backgrounds coming through. And I also don't want the boards of the future and the executive committees of the future to be sort of two-parters where the big P&L owners are all men and the functional leads are all women. And I think we've got to guard against that too. Talking about career progression, you left Aviva to join Projects Everyone, leaving marketing per se behind. Was that always your grand plan to move from... You know, a senior marketing position into chair or CEO? Not in the least. In all honesty, I hadn't really had a grand plan, even a minor plan. And actually, I was on secondment from Aviva. So I was still doing little bits for Aviva throughout that time. And I had the strange lofty title of executive advisor, actually, at Project Everyone. But it was a brilliant training ground because I went from very big team, significant budget, multiple markets to, you know, one massive challenge hardly any people and absolutely no budget, but with the most brilliant creative brains around. So Richard Curtis is just incredible. And then the combination of Gail Galley and Kate Garvey, who were the co-founders with Richard, was just the most extraordinary experience to be able to help them get that project up and running and get to three billion people as we did in that week of launch, 25th September 2015. You mentioned Richard Curtis. Most people, certainly I, only know him from whether or not it be Blackadder or Notting Hill. What was he like working with on a daily basis? He is probably the nicest, most humble human being you'll ever meet. But I think what I found most fascinating about his brain, he had an ability to think a million miles high and within a nanosecond then look at the detail. So we all know that the best leaders can do big picture but also won't let the detail escape. But the speed with which he was able to do that was quite remarkable and I've rarely seen it. And he is a genius communicator, so that's his real thing. He he really knows how to get something over to human beings because he is absolute archmaster at humanity, basically. Bringing it up to date to business in the community, and we're here today in your offices, what's your ultimate objective there? For anybody listening who perhaps doesn't is not fully au fait with BITC, what are you trying to achieve? We define our mission as existing to create healthy communities with successful business at their heart. And for us, successful business is a responsible business. So we define it, we show you how to get better at it. And for me, we could shut if every business in the country was the very best it could be at responsible business. And what does it mean to be responsible? Well, it means that if you think about the whole gamut of everything from education, are you thinking about, are you helping schools prepare children for the workplace? Are you helping them get the broader skills that they need? In terms of employment, are you not only 
providing wholesome, good employment for your existing workers, but you also may be helping employ people that are struggling to work. You know, we have a, an incredible programme which helps employ ex-offenders in, into legal firms, for instance. But within your employment, have you got great wellbeing practices? Are you diverse and inclusive? And so we have programmes against all of those where we convene a leader from the business world and they convene other business leaders and then they tackle and push that campaign forward and push the thinking forward on that. We've just done a really interesting thing on gender, which is an equal lives survey, asking men basically what their role is in the house based on the assumption that there will never be true equality unless there's real equality across the patch, so unless blokes take their fair share. And, of course, it might work in reverse in other households, but on the large part, you know, men need to step up and do a little bit more at home, I would say. But we'll report on that in September. And then, obviously, that's the gamut of employment issues and well-being in the workplace right through to sustainability. So is your business living the circular economy? It's quite a tall order that a business would be good at all of it. They're not going to be good at all of it, but they can absolutely get better across that whole gamut every single year. Do you find it a tough sell? Because there is time and cost associated with doing all of those things for businesses who are obviously under pressure to deliver results, whether or not it be for private shareholders or the city. Well, sometimes... But I'm relieved and pleased to say that increasingly investors are asking some of those tough questions. Because if you believe the business case that diversity is a good thing and your board will perform better, etc., then an investor worth its salt will be asking that. Similarly, investors asking tough questions of, say, a, uh, a manufacturer that uses plastic because they know they'll lose their consumer franchise if they keep using plastic because we all know no one wants to use single-use plastics anymore. So actually, those two worlds now are beginning to join up where it sounds a bit trite, but doing well by doing good. I think something that we really love doing as well is bringing people together to tackle problems. So I had the privilege of being on the Isles of Scilly on Tuesday on St Martin's, where all the people that are in charge of sustainability on St Martin's, we had a, a link back to London where we'd got a whole bunch of business leaders who are experts in the field of sustainability, looking at how you help the Scillies be this fantastic little micro market of the circular economy and an exemplar of that system because there aren't many people on the Scillies but their ecosystem is very fragile and they have to think about how much waste they produce where they get their water from they can't have recycling bins at the bottom of their street because the population is so tiny they can't it can't justify that scale of recycling so how are you going to do it but that means they can prototype some really interesting stuff that we can then export if you like to other towns and cities around the UK and then ultimately export it across the world because my dream would be that the UK is the very best at doing responsible business of any country in the world we should be that feels to me absolutely the place we should be I can see you're very passionate about it and you just said that businesses that do good will do better if I understood you correctly however you did tell us recently that the word purpose, which is often used as shorthand to describe many of the things that you've just talked about, is an overused word. I just wondered if you could illustrate why you think so and what the detriment of overusing it is. Because I think people don't mean it. So they use it relatively superficially and people rush around going, oh, yes, you've got to have a purpose and it's really important to have a purpose. It is. But the hard yards are when it costs you something and it's that old the principle, isn't it? Principle till it's really cost you something. 
So it's all right saying, you know, I, I don't know, I'm going to make this up. You know, we exist for the well-being of society. I'm making that up because you do come across sense like, that. OK, fine. So what does that really mean? How many hard yards are you really? So really, are you going to go into the toughest parts of the UK and make sure that there are no issues around well-being left in any of those places? Well, no, well, we didn't really mean that. We just meant when we were designing this product, we thought, all I'm doing is challenging. Don't just use the word lazily. Use it and really, really mean it. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of people bouncing about going, oh, we exist to help people create their purpose. For me, I'm not interested in that until I see 10 bits of evidence of where they're seriously living it and they've potentially had to sacrifice something in order to show that they really, really mean it. And if business want the trust of the public again, and indeed you could say to an extent politicians, but clearly some politicians are on a slightly different agenda and I'm not, I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in the sort of the mainstream politician. Business has to really think about that stuff. Now, some businesses are superb at it. I'm afraid some it is still a bit lip service. Now, you're far from the end of your career, but you have had a long one. So I'm going to ask you... <laughs> Thank you for that, saying that so sensitively. <laughs> if you could point to a regret or something that you could identify that you really could have done better and differently, what would it be? Oh, good Lord. I think every single day. One thing. OK, <laughs> yes, yes. OK. Well, one's very personal... I think I, like most 20-somethings, spent too much time worrying about how I came over and myself in my early 20s. And, and frankly, just get over yourself and just think about the business problem and just contribute and give. So I think that's a very personal one, but I think I watch it happen time and time again. And it's such wasted energy and emotion. I think from a, a marketing point of view... I think I wish I'd been sort of bolder sooner. And then from a personal career point of view, I might have said a couple of years ago, actually, there are a couple of roles, maybe if I'd stayed, I might have become a CEO, a divisional CEO within one of those companies. But actually, I think I'm quite glad now I haven't, because I think I'm doing something that really suits me. So actually, on balance, I'm not sure I have too many regrets of those. I think you do learn something from everything. I suppose one thing I did learn, actually, is I took a job with HP, which was sort of based out of Geneva, when my children were a bit too young, and that was really tricky. And so I think you've got to be really honest about the state of what you can balance and when, and when you can have a role abroad and, and not move your family. And th those were just quite practical things, actually. I think don't take yourself too seriously and don't expend too much energy in the early stage of your career on what people think about you is a really great piece of advice for certainly the younger people listening uh, to finish on. So Amanda McKenzie, OBE, thank you very much <laughs> for your time today. Well, thank you, Russell. I really enjoyed it. And I would also say huge thanks to Marketing Week because it has been part of my training and professional development. And so huge thanks to the magazine too. Well, thank you. That's fantastic to hear. And I didn't even ask you to say it either. So <laughs> yes, fully no appreciate money traded it. hands. <laughs> and that's all we have time for today. Thank you to my guest, Amanda McKenzie. You have been listening to Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by Something Else, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Laura Hyde. You can subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud and listen via marketingweek.com, where you'll find previous episodes with Professor Byron Sharp, RBS CMO David Weldon, and Tom Goodwin. Until next time, goodbye.
Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.